Good morning. How are you all doing this morning? Good. We are glad that you are here. Welcome to Life Community. Um, it's great to see you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being here at 11, helping us grow our 11 o'clock service. Um, hey, if you're new around here, we are preaching through the book of Ephesians. And last week, we got to a real turning point in the book, heading into chapter 4. And let me just encourage you, if you've missed, if you're just joining us or just coming back after a, a summer full of traveling and you, you've missed it, I encourage you to either go back to the podcast and catch up or just read through, spend some time reading through the first first three chapters of this book, because everything Paul's going to say from this point on really hinges on the foundation of the gospel and grace and understanding what he's done for us in Jesus. And that's in chapters one through three. But last week, we got to this sort of turning point verse as he heads into the second half of the verse or of the book, which is going to be all about Christian character, how we live out our lives when it comes to relating to each other and our families and in the Christian community and the community at large, how we do life, character, integrity, the way we do life as a follower of Jesus. And last week, I gave you a memory verse, a verse to take home, think about, ponder through the week, and challenge you to memorize this. Maybe you did. Hopefully, you at least thought about it a little bit. And I just want to put that up there one more time, because this is how Paul sets up, and here's where he's headed in this section. He says, I, therefore... A prisoner for the Lord. He's writing this from prison because he's been so faithful to Jesus. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He sets up in the first couple chapters this amazing fact that you've been called into something way bigger than yourself, something eternal. And now he says, I urge you to walk. It's a journey. It's a, it's, it's, Sometimes you get off, you get back on the path. It's a journey. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you will be called. And last week we saw that this works itself out in our relationships in a few different ways. It's character, it's humility, a proper understanding of ourself in, in relationship to God. It starts in, in gentleness, in bearing with one another in love, or literally as we saw what that meant last week, putting up with one another in self-sacrificing agape love. Now, how many of you know that sometimes you're the person in the relationship that needs to be put up with? A little honesty in church is good, yeah. Um, we all are sometimes, aren't we? In any relationship, sometimes I'm the one that needs to be put up with in love. Now, we also saw this big concept that most of the instructions, most of the commands in the New Testament are meant to be lived out in the context of one another. In fact, we have a phrase around here called one another ring, which is a fancy way of saying community of the, the groups and the context when we come together and live out the stuff that Jesus says to do. It's kind of easy to do it when you're stuck in a little cabin all by yourself alone and you can sort of not be around anybody. It's a little more challenging when you're actually rubbing shoulders with people in your families, in your relationships, in the church community. And nowhere else is this more true than in our families. Now, when it comes to family, one thing I think we can all agree about is one, one thing we all have in common when it comes to families is conflict, right? Every family has conflict. Somebody's grumpy, somebody's upset, somebody's angry about something. Oftentimes it's a little thing that spins out of control and turns into a big thing and leads to a fight. 
We all share conflict. If you're in a family, you probably experienced that, right? Now, I have a uh, just a true confession for you as your pastor here this morning. Um, some, a lot of times after church, after we get done with church on Sunday, we like to pack a car up and head up to the mountain and just hang out and enjoy it up there. It, it's great. And um, my wife tells me oftentimes I get a little grumpy. So I am... I get a little upset, a little angry, and I get in trouble for, like, changing the atmosphere of the family. And um, I have excuses for that. So sometimes I'm like, yeah, well, I just had to work really hard. I did three services. But then I think back, I'm like, no, I was just as grumpy when we had two. So maybe that excuse doesn't work. Um, And then I like the excuse that it's hot. Anybody else, you use that one, too, when you get a little angry or grumpy? It's hot out, you know? But really, when I start drilling down, and if I get honest with myself, it's like, no, actually, what, what you think, there's this place inside of your heart that thinks that you deserve, after you know the weekend, to be able to walk home and just do nothing and sit down in the driver's seat, turn the key, and everything's packed and loaded and ready to go, and the kids are wrangled, and we're on the road without doing anything. And then I go like, uh, well, that's real mature, Pastor Tim. Actually, that's my wife's voice, uh, <laughs> which doesn't help the situation, right? Urgh. Anybody else sometimes get a little grumpy, a little, little angry? Yeah, conflict. Um, I, it's, it's something we can all relate to. And you know what? We all handle conf- conflict a little bit differently. Have you noticed that? You got the avoiders that just hate conflict and anytime like you start to like starts to amp up a little bit they're like just never mind it's okay we're good and everybody knows we're not good you pay for it for the next seven days you know you're not good right or you have the eeyores that that there's a conflict and then you just get so down and you just mope for the next three days Uh, you know Um, or you have the pretenders people that just sort of stuff it down and they're like i'm fine it's fine and everybody out of the house is just waiting for something to blow, right? Because it's not fine. Then you have the, uh, the lawyers. This is kind of me. The ones who are really good at arguing their case. And you have all the facts. You have it like a solid case. And everyone hates to argue with you because you always win the argument. <laughs> now, if that's you, I got an, that got an amen last night. Somebody was like, amen. And then, and then I shared this fact from history that... Uh, that it's said that neither Adolf Hitler nor Saddam Hussein ever lost an argument. So just throwing that out there, you know. Because here's the thing. If you're really good at winning an argument, even though you won, you know actually in the context of family, you didn't win anything, did you? (laughs) And then oftentimes you have the exploders. And sometimes, uh, oftentimes there's people that maybe come from, we call them hot climates, like Latin climates or Italy or something, and maybe you come from a family with this kind of background or just this was the dynamic in your family, and when a conflict came up, everybody gets heated, everybody yells, everybody explodes, then it's over and everybody's fine. But oftentimes what happens is you have a spouse from that kind of background that marries someone from like the stuff it down or pretender or like avoid conflict background, and like a conflict comes up and they freak out and the other spouse is like, whoa, they're like on the phone with the pastor. Do we need to do some deliverance here? Cast out some demons. What's going on here, right? So everybody handles conflict a little bit differently. But when it comes to anger and conflict, here's what I think we can all agree on. When it comes to anger and conflict in our families, 
When you win an argument in the family, you don't win at all, do you? Oftentimes, you lose something very critical to the relationship. And when it comes to anger, when our anger gets the best of us, it always produces damage and regrets, doesn't it? When we lose control of our anger, it, it, it produces damage and regrets. And when it comes to dealing with our anger, I think we can all agree that it's a reasonable expectation. There's a reasonable expectation that with maturity, we should learn how to better manage and deal with our anger, right? Yeah, that's reasonable. In fact, I'll illustrate it this way. If you go to the grocery store and there's a, like, you know, 18-month-old toddler throwing a fit, you think, um, oh, there's a toddler. Poor mom, right? As she's dragging her kid out of the store. Now, hopefully you think that. I, I used to think differently before I had kids. I was a little judgmental. I was like, man, what poor parenting. Why don't they control their toddler? Then you have a toddler. You realize why you can't control a toddler. Anyway, <laughs> so if you're like that, go have kids and come talk to me later, okay? But if, if you see a nine-year-old throwing a fit in the store, like all-out fit, it's like there's, there's something wrong there, right? It's not right. Because there's a reasonable expectation that with maturity, we should learn how to better deal with conflict and anger. And here's what the Apostle Paul is going to show us today, is that when it comes to Jesus followers, how we deal with anger and conflict has everything to do with our maturity as a follower of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, it'll be on the screen too behind me, but if you have your Bibles, you want to follow along, once you start turning on over to the book of Ephesians. But before we get into the book of Ephesians, I want to set up this passage and this topic with two little verses from the book of James. Now, James is the brother of Jesus, and when it comes to anger and conflict, he had an observation about that, about what causes it and what it does in us. And here's what he says in James chapter 4, verse 1. He asks this question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? What causes them? He says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. So James, as he looks at this topic of anger and conflict, he says, ultimately, here's the thing. There's something you deeply want and when you don't get it, anger, this anger bubbles be under the surface and sometimes explodes and bad things happen. And ultimately, I'm guessing that when that happens, you're not really seeking God. You're not taking it to God. You're not taking your needs to God. So James has this observation. Now tuck that away because we're going to end up coming back to it toward the end of, of the talk. So just tuck that away. And I want to dive in now to what the Apostle Paul is going to say about who you are and how we walk in a manner worthy of our calling when it comes to how we treat each other and in the context of anger and conflict, which we'll get to in a minute. So here's how he sets it up. And like Paul so often does, 
he's going to get to the problem in the midst of some deep theology. So hang with me for a minute. Here's what he says. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. He's using very strong language that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Now, this is interesting because he's writing to Gentiles, which is kind of funny. He's like, hey, Gentiles, don't live like you. What's he saying? Well, you remember chapter 3, he sets this up by talking about the new humanity. That at this point in history, there's, there's the people of God tracing all the way back to Abraham and excluded from that are all the other peoples, the Gentiles, who serve false gods, idols, under demonic influences. And he says, but God made a way for you, and he's brought you in, he's grafted you in, he's made a new humanity. You're actually a new person, so don't live like the old person anymore in the futility of your mind. And futility, when you hear this, um, it's a really close parallel to Romans chapter 1, which really views sinful behavior as rooted in patterns of thinking. In fact, a paraphrase of Romans 121 is this. Uh, Paul says, hey, these people who've rebelled against God, he says, they knew there was a God, but they didn't acknowledge him. In other words, there's this refusal to know what they really know at some point within them. In fact, uh, my dad has gone around the country for years and years doing talks, and I always remember this one slide, this newspaper headline he puts up. There's this really famous atheist or agnostic back um, last century sometime, a number of years ago, and he calculated the probability of, I think it was one cell developing by chance random processes apart from, you know, designer, and came to the conclusion it was about the same probability as a, as a tornado going through a junkyard and creating a Boeing 747. And the newspaper headline that he came up with, this, this atheist or agnostic says, there must be a God. That's his conclusion after studying the science. But then it was really interesting, the subtext is, but I'm really trying hard to find another explanation. Why? Because if there's a creator God that created the universe, he gets to define what truth is, and all of a sudden I'm accountable to him. All of a sudden my behavior is accountable to him. All of a sudden the desires and things that I want, i got to lay before him. The way I treat others, the anger in my heart, it's accountable to him, right? So he says you need to have a change in, in your mind. In fact, this little word futility in the Greek it's interesting because a couple hundred years before Jesus, there's a translation of the Bible that they translated the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament, into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. And this was actually the Bible translation that Paul quotes from all the time, and a lot of the New Testament writers, seems like as they're writing most of these letters in Greek, not Hebrew, their original language, they're quoting this translation. And it uses the word futility, this same word, over and over. And you know what book it uses it the most in? Ecclesiastes. Now, if you've been with us since January, at least January, you know we preached through the whole book of Ecclesiastes and we dug into this word because it's the same word. This is the word translated, which Ecclesiastes in Hebrew talks about vanity or um, havel, which means a vapor or mist. It's that idea that we see Solomon talking about that life under the sun, apart from the influence or the overarching influence of, of a creator, God, life as we can know it without God in the picture is futility. It's rinse and repeat. In fact, he says, I tried everything I could do. I've done way more than you've done. I have more money. I have more sex. I had 
everything that you think will bring you happiness in life, all the stuff, I did achievement, I tried that, I went down that path all the way, and I did what you will never do. I read, ran the treadmill to the end. I actually got to the end of myself. See, for us, most of the time, we're on a treadmill, and, and we just think if I can go one more lap around this, if I can get that upgrade, get into that new house, get into that relationship, then I'll fill this space that's missing within me. And Solomon says, no, uh, I, I've tried it, and it doesn't do it, it for you. I actually got to the end of myself, so listen to me if you want to find joy and happiness. Listen to me, because what, what ultimately, he says, God has placed eternity in our hearts, and there's a space within us that only God can fill. There's a space longing for God that nothing else can fill. But yet we try with all these different things, and here's what happens. Here's what I think James was getting at. Here's what happens is we try to fill these and take our happiness from other people or from relationships or from working hard and achieving things or from getting more stuff and ultimately it doesn't fill that void and, and we get frustrated and angry. And for so many people, there's an underlying anger bubbling under the surface and it's tied to the fact that, that you keep trying to get with things that you want, thinking you're going to fill that space in your heart, but it doesn't do it for you. And what happens in our relationships is you end up, end up taking it out on everybody else, especially those closest to you. So he goes on in verse 18, he says this, they, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. So he says it's actually a heart problem here, a hardness of the heart. And, and the behaviors are a symptom of a heart and of patterns of thinking that do not line up with the truth of God. In fact, in, in Jewish understanding, the heart... Was, was the source of loyalties. It was the, the seat of the emotion and will. In fact, Jesus, what does he say? He says it's out of the heart, paraphrase, that all kinds of ickiness comes. It's the heart. It's a heart issue. There's a heart that's insensitive to God. In Jewish understanding, they also saw that at the root of all sin was idolatry. Something else being placed in the center, in the place where only God should be. We see that in our culture, don't we? Self and pleasure become the center of our lives. They become the idol. Isn't it crazy? Paul wrote this 2,000 years ago, and it's like he could have written this today, isn't it? It's definitely our culture. And so what do you see? He says sensuality and purity, sex as an idol. If I could just get more, more relationships, I'll fill that place within me, that need within me for relationship, but it doesn't do it, does it? Greed, it's the idea of covetousness, just this, this unbridled desire to have more, this thing that's never content within us. It's, it's insatiable. In fact, the old King James Version uses the phrase the deceitful lust instead of greed right here. And I think that's a really good way of understanding it. Because the deceit is, if I could just get more of him or her or that, 
It would fill this place. It's deceitful because self is never satisfied. Self has an unquenchable thirst. There's not enough stuff, relationships, sex, or whatever you think is going to fill that void within you to fill it. In fact, the more you feed it, the more you, it grows in intensity. I think that creates this underlying frustration and anger in so many people. Augustine put it this way. He was a father, uh, early church father that was really influential in, the, in Christianity. He said, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Like your heart just doesn't find rest. It's like your treadmill. You're just more, more, more. And unlike Solomon, we don't get to the end of ourselves. We just keep thinking, well, it's, there's always a next thing. And here's the problem with idolatry. One of the problems is idolatry always leads to slavery. Have you noticed that so many people have vices that they both love and cling to and hate at the same time? But you've got something that somebody in your family does. Oftentimes, something that starts out maybe as a rebellious act or an expression of freedom, it turns into slavery, doesn't it? And something you can't escape from, though you desperately wish you could. Old Testament scholar Tom Wright puts it this way. He says, idols demand sacrifices. And oftentimes, sin is its own self-perpetuating punishment. It's a cycle, isn't it? Maybe you're thinking, Paul is really negative about humanity. I mean, I think I'm a pretty good person, and I try to chase after God. I'm pretty religious, you know. I try to be a good person. Paul's really negative, but here's the thing. He's not diminishing human worth. He's not diminishing the image of God. He's not putting down Gentiles. In fact, he is the apostle to the Gentile, the one tasked to bring the love of God and the invitation of Jesus to the Gentiles, right? He's talking about, here's the actual condition of the heart of humanity separated from God in rebellion. This is why you got to go back and read chapters 1 through 3. Because he sets it up and he he explains to us that even though there's, you know, beauty in in humanity and the image of God and and humans have done some remarkable things, at, at the same time, there's a spiritual death that separates those who are outside of faith in Christ from Jesus. That's why he says back in Ephesians 2, that as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. But he goes on, he says, but because of his great love for us, he loved us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. Unmerited favor. He reached for you first. He loved you first. And when you responded through faith to Jesus, you were given a new life, a new identity, a new humanity. You were made into a new creation. So he goes on to contrast and says, this is what's now true of you. Verse 20, he says, that, however, is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him according with the truth that is in Jesus. Remember, when you first embraced Jesus, we taught you all about the life and the teachings of Jesus and how they relate to your life. Jesus, as he says, I am the way, the truth, the life, the only way to the Father. Remember that. Remember that. It wasn't about earning it and being a a good guy or a good girl on your own and, you know, doing a few good things and tipping the scales in your favor. It was that you trusted in him and he gave you a whole new way to live 
And it was a way that actually brought joy and life and fulfillment rather than the treadmill that you were on for so long. He says in verse 22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires and to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness, right relationship. Things are in a state of peace, shalom, Overall, like shalom, it's the idea of things are put right in right relationship with each other and holiness being set apart for God's purposes, that life is about him, not you as the center anymore. So he says, hey, there's something new about you. There's something that's true about you now. And, you, and it begins with having being renewed in the attitude of your minds this, this is like he says in Romans 12, hey, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, when you, th- when you thought according to the pattern of the world, that if you just keep on the treadmill, you can squeeze happiness out of those around you. They're your source of happiness. When you're thinking that way, you actually, to live the way of Jesus, you have to transform and allow your mind to be renewed. Change your mind to think according to what the God of the universe says is true. He's your source of joy. He's the center. A new attitude of your minds, and it's something that he does. And then, but it's, it's also a choice. It's something you choose to do. It's an ongoing process. And he uses this language of putting off and putting on. It's like baptism. You know, baptism, water baptism, it's, it's a symbol of what happens spiritually when we trust in Jesus. And it's a symbol of dying to your old self, the one who lived according to this pattern of thinking, leaving it behind, and then being risen again with him to new life, a new humanity, a new way of living. But you know what? It's an ongoing decision. I like it that he uses taking off, putting on, because it's a process of transformation. We don't arrive now. You never get to a place where you're like, I'm here. It's called a process, and this is a big theological word, of sanctification which means he continues to transform you to be more like him, to think more the way that he says is true and right. There needs to be a process of transformation and ongoing conviction, actually, and repentance of sin. You know, that's one of the, one of the key things that the Holy Spirit does. We like to, like, worship, and I love worship through music and sometimes feel the goosebumps and the presence of God. I love that. But, you know, one of the things the presence of God does and the Holy Spirit does is to convict of sin, to, to highlight things in your life and go, you know what? We need to talk about this. this. This is the old pattern of thinking. This is bringing damage to you and your relationships. We need to deal with this. And it's you cooperating with him in transformation that brings you closer to him, more like him. There was a famous preacher um, last century... I believe, Dr. Barnhouse, and he was preaching on kind of this topic, and there was a young man that says, well, I sin, but it doesn't seem to, like, affect me at all. It doesn't bother me at all. I don't get depressed. It doesn't haunt me. And the preacher looks at him and says, hey, tell, tell me some. What would happen if I dropped an 800-pound weight on the body of a dead man? Would he feel it? Would he be in pain? Would it bother him? And the guy's like, of course not. And Dr. Barnhouse said, that's the point. If you don't feel the weight of sin, if it's not heavy upon you, 
If it's not having an impact on you, it's because you're spiritually dead. That's what Paul's talking about when he says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You weren't running after God. He had to reach down first for you. And, I, and now here's the thing. As a, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, it's possible to, to stiff arm the Holy Spirit enough. We call it searing your conscience enough where, where it just sort of dies down. It doesn't bother you anymore. If that's the case, you need to cry out to him and say like David did, create in me a new heart, a clean heart, God. I want to be sensitive to you. I want to be sensitive to your Holy Spirit again. So verse 25, and now he gets down to the nitty-gritty when it comes to our relationships and conflict and how we treat each other. He says this, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. He brings up the unity thing in, in the family of God and in the body of Christ, which is especially true and most pictured in the, in the family relationship, right? And he says, speak truthfully to each other. As followers of Jesus, we're to be people of integrity. Now, you don't be a jerk. It doesn't mean you're, you're a jerk and you blab everything that comes to your mind that might be true. Truth in love. He talked about that last week. Truth in love. Sometimes you hold your tongue, right? truth and love, but it does mean we are people of integrity, that we keep our word. And he uses this picture of the body. It's almost like if one hand is lying to the other hand, how are you going to get the job done? That breaks unity. In fact, this is a great thing to teach your kids if you're a parent. The big deal with lying, the real reason you got to be honest with your family, honest, is that if you, if you don't tell me the truth, I can't trust you, and it breaks relationship. Own up to it. See, we have, we have the um, tendency to try to make ourselves look good, right? And because of that, we don't own up to things. Now, I'm not saying you go and blab all your stuff to everybody. But you need some people that you're open and honest with and who know your junk. A little later in the fall, we're going to be talking more about some of these replicate groups that, that some of you are in already. And, and this is a great environment with two or three other people to begin to have someone in your life that, man, you can just be honest with, that can pray for you, that can support you in that thing. Now, we're called to integrity with everyone, right? But you need some people that just like you're an open book to. So he says, integrity, speak truth. And then he says, when it comes to anger, when it comes to conflict, he quotes Psalm 4, which literally says, be angry and do not sin. Now, here's the implication of this. Not all anger is sinful. You remember Jesus and the money changers? There is a place for righteous anger. Child trafficking and that thing that rises up within you and says that should not be. Now, the proper channel for that anger is to do something, right? To allow that to propel you into doing something to reach that need. We call that a holy discontent. But here's the truth about human anger, especially conflict in relationships. Um, it's almost always destructive, isn't it? I mean, if you're honest, you've had moments of that kind of thing, but you're not Jesus, and most of the time, your anger, your anger is destructive to relationships. In Proverbs, it says this, Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man. What does that mean? 
means if you got a buddy who's really prone to flying off the handle and losing his temper, you're likely to get pulled in on it. Some of you might have a story. You can tell me afterwards. You're like, yep, there was this one time in Mexico. Woo. But you know that's true, don't you? Some of you have maybe literal scars to prove it because you got pulled into a fight. You got in a situation. Maybe you spent a night in jail. It's true, isn't it? James says this, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Why? Because anger is almost always self-centered. It almost always has me in the center. And similar to lying, anger destroys both the person, sometimes physically. Have you noticed that? Maybe you know someone. I can think of, I can think of people who literally... You know, anger has been proven scientifically, holding bitterness and anger inside. It contributes to a whole bunch of actual physical conditions, not to mention spiritually to your soul. You got to learn to let go of anger, right? Anger can destroy both the person and also the community and unity, right? It can destroy a family, can't it? And here's the thing about anger. Nobody feels like their anger is unjust. Have you ever noticed that? You can always justify your anger, find a reason why you're right and you have the right to be angry. Um, I remember one of my teachers way back in YWAM when I was right out of high school, he used this little phrase that stuck with me ever since, to justify is just a lie. It's catchy and it's true. To just, it's just deceiving yourself and making yourself feel good. So he says, here's, here's what you need to do with your anger. Um, he acknowledges there's times you're going to be angry uh, and, and that's a normal human emotion, but don't let it drive you to sin and get rid of it really quickly. He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Here's a really good rule for a marriage. Don't go to bed angry. Now, you may have, like, you may have some things you got to talk through in the morning. Like, you probably don't, you, you might not be able to hash it out at midnight, but at least say, hey, I'm sorry that out of the control. Let's talk about this later. Don't go to bed angry and bitter. The idea here is you need to forgive. A couple of verses down, this is going to be key. Don't hang on to bitterness. We're called to forgive. Jesus said forgive and tied it to actually God's forgiveness of us. Don't let bitterness take a root in your heart. If you have anger, get rid of it quickly or else it becomes what? A foothold. A foothold for Satan. It gives Satan a place to mess with you and your relationships. Here's the implication behind this is that behind unresolved anger is a spiritual battle. It's actually going more going on than you realize. And when you hold bitterness and anger, it actually gives Satan a place to mess with you and your relationships. Famous pastor Rick Warren says this, when you become angry, Satan is at the ready with an arsenal of hurtful words that he plants in your mind. He stokes your pride. He makes you think that you must be right or have the last word. He keeps you from seeing or caring about the hurt you're causing. Somebody say, ouch, because that rings true, doesn't it? So how do you deal with anger? How do you make sure it doesn't go to sin? I think there's three little keys, and I want to put back up those two verses from James real quick. Because I think there's a, three little keys is, that he has in here. When he asks, what, what causes fights, 
and quarrels among you. I'll tell you where we go. Like if we just asked the question right now, um, somebody would be getting an elbow in the ribs, a dirty look to the side. Don't do that, okay? Because <laughs> our tendency is immediately to go, they do, right? They cause that. I'm mean, like, have you met my kids? My parents are always in my face. She spends all the money. We, we tend to blame others for our unhappiness, don't we? And here's the thing. If you blame others for your unhappiness, you will always have anger bubbling under the surface waiting to explode. So he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Then he clues in on something. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Your desires. You have desires battling within you. Ultimately, James says, the, the issue is inside of you. You have something you want, and behind every conflict and that anger that bubbles over and between every person who you've been in conflict with, especially in family, there's, there's a desire, and it's just spilling over, and it's causing conflict and anger and doing damage. He says this, you desire, but you do not have. You have something you want, and it goes unfulfilled. So what? You kill. Now, I don't think he's talking about physically here, although I'm sure he's thinking back to like Cain and Abel, right? But I think it's very relevant to us because think about what happens so often in families. We often hurt the ones closest to us because we're not getting the thing we want. We do or say something that ends up damaging or killing a relationship. You know, with your words, you can shred someone's self-worth, can't you? You can hurt someone so deeply that something dies. Have you ever had words that came out of your mouth and like you just wish you could stuff them back in? It's almost like you can see them floating out there and you're like, no, right? But you can't. And some of you have seen a relationship killed or almost killed because you couldn't get a hold of your anger. And behind that was there was something you wanted and you weren't getting it, so you tried to criticize them into doing it. You tried to shame them into becoming who you want. You tried to make, mold them or push them into being someone they weren't. When it comes to your kids, a real good piece of advice is this. Always discipline with the goal of building the relationship. Like there are things, we, we tend to go to behavior modification first. And if you've had kids, you know there's some behaviors that need modification, right? But we tend to go there first. But behind that, your, over, your bigger goal needs to be that I would build this relationship, that they would be closer to God and closer to me, that when they grow up, they'd actually want to come home, that I'd keep the heart connection alive. So vital for parents. And let me tell you, if you're someone who can't get a hold of your anger, you're going to damage and destroy relationships. I've seen the damage anger has done in families of relationships with kids destroyed, of a, a relationship with God damaged. He goes on, he says, you covet being intensely focused on that thing that you want, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. There's the source of your conflict. You do not have because you do not ask God. The things you want are insatiable. They never fill that place in your, whole, in your heart. So you try to squeeze your happiness out of someone else, right? And here, here's what I see. There's three little action steps that you can take away from this. The first one is you need to come to grips with the problem. And we see that in here um, where he says, what's the problem? 
It's actually what you want. It's your desires. That's what's causing the conflict. Behind everything, every conflict, that's it, right? And so here's a really useful little tool. Everybody point at themselves. And think about a big conflict starting to come in your family or in your friend, circle of friends or something. If you could just pause and go, hey, you know what? I know what the problem is. I'm not getting what I want. Everybody try that once. Ready? I'm not getting what I want. You weren't very enthusiastic. Let's try it one more time. I'm not getting what I want. You know, if you just pause for long enough to recognize that and identify the thing you want that you're not getting that's causing the anger to well up, it's actually powerful. It has the ability to begin to ramp the conflict down. Just the recognition of, okay, okay. The problem is that what they're doing isn't giving me what I want. Okay, I'm going to recognize that. Now, what I want may be right. It may not be right. But just recognizing I'm not getting what I want, it's, it's very powerful. The second one is this. Own your own junk. This is so, so vital in a relationship. You recognize I'm not getting what I want. And in every conflict, there's always, you have your junk. I went to an uh, estate sale yesterday, and I, I brought home some junk to put in the garage where I get a little annoyed with other people's junk. But I'm not annoyed with my junk going in there. You got to own your own junk. You got to own your part of the conflict. Um, a really famous preacher uh, would do this in marriage counseling. He would make them sit down and draw a circle on a blank piece of paper. So in, in, in like an argument. And then he'd say, okay, here, you draw your slice. If this is a pie, this round circle represents the whole conflict. Draw your slice of the pie. What's your portion of the conflict? And it's really hard to do that. People would go, ah. Because what? Because as soon as you own up to your slice, you have a bit of the problem in the conflict, don't you? <laughs> own your slice. you got to own your slice. What is your role in the conflict? Cut yourself a slice. Eat your slice. Own your slice. Because here's the truth is we always tend to underestimate the size of our slice, right? Well, my slice is like slice is that big. Okay, that might be. At least own yours. <laughs> when you start thinking about your slice, all of a sudden what you often figure out is your slice is maybe a little bit bigger than you thought it was. In fact, I think Jesus talks about this where he says, hey, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Sometimes it's a little bigger than we care to imagine, right? We see our slice as a speck, and Jesus says, actually, we need to extract the log so that you can see clearly in this situation. And this takes humbling yourself and admitting that you own a piece of the slice too, right? And I know you're objecting in your heart and your mind. You're like, but, but my husband vowed, or my roommate said she would quit doing, or my kid said, trust me, and I did. What's my piece? Let me own it. As soon as you own it, you know it. It begins to take the heat and the conflict down just a little bit. Third thing is take it to God. Do you realize he said you don't, have, you don't ask? And here's what's usually true in every angry conflict that erupts. You haven't stopped and prayed about it. 
You haven't poured your heart out to God over the issue. See, here's the thing. Before you go storming, you know, into your teenager's bedroom or, you know, type in that Facebook response, you're going to zinger, right? Or before you get all amped up, have you actually paused to take this to God? Have you spent any time actually asking God to help you get to the root of, like, why am I so angry about this? What is it that I really want? Okay, God, I want a happy marriage, and I'm trying to squeeze it out of them, and right now they're not giving it to me. I want my kids to be more like this. I'm pushing hard so they'll be more like this, but I'm not sure that that's who they're wired up to be. I want a wife who is or a husband who is or parents that are, and right now they aren't. And, man, have you prayed about it? Have you poured your heart out to your Father in heaven who loves you and knows your needs? Isn't it a little ironic that in the midst of conflict, Christians would, be have, would have to be reminded to pray? But we do, don't we? Because so many times that's the last thing on our mind. If you really take it to, to God before you head into a situation where you know there's going to be conflict... I think it'll help take the edge off those conversations. And have you taken maybe, have you taken your motives to God? The very next verse, James will go on and say, hey, part of the reason why you don't get what you're asking for is you ask with the wrong motives. Sometimes God says, no, you're not asking for the right reason. Sometimes you have the right reason, but the answer is still no or not yet. Or, and, and you have to acknowledge you're God, and I'm not. He never promises to give you everything you want, but he will give you grace in your situation, mercy in your time of need. And here's the thing. When you take it to God, there's a place of centering yourself on the truth that if they never change, if I never get what I want out of them, God, I can still find my contentment and my peace and my happiness in you. I know you care for me. Give me your peace. Give me your peace. Whether or not I can change them, I've done my part. So here's what I want you to take home. I'm just, I'm going to give you another memory verse. There's so many really good little ones. A verse to take home. Take a phone, shot of it on your phone and, and uh, put it on your home screen or write it on a card and sticky note and stick it on your mirror. Some of you, you need to really take this seriously because this is an issue that if you don't deal with it, it's going to do damage in your family, in your relationships, and those closest to you. So I'd like us to all read this together. Um, We're going to read this a couple times before we close. So let's go ahead and read it. Here we go. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Some of you, you're still like, okay, you need to read it a little louder, okay? Here we go, one more time. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. You know, a couple of verses below this, Paul's going to talk about forgiveness, how vital it is about getting rid of bitterness. But can you imagine... If, if your family, if everyone in your family really like took this to heart and did this, how it might change the dynamic in your family, I think the ripples would go on to make our relationships magnetic to those who don't know Jesus yet. 
So first, pause. Remember why you're angry. There's something you want. You're not getting it. Say, you know what? I know what the part of the problem is, is I'm not getting what I want. Then own your slice. Own your junk. What's your slice of the pie? What's your, what's your role? And then take it to God. Surrender yourself to the one who cares most about you and your family. Would you stand? I'm just going to close by praying for you. Father, thank you so much for my friends. And Lord, um, I pray you would help us all take this to heart. That you would give those that maybe this is a real struggle for them, the grace, Lord, to live this out and walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they've been called. Lord, that for, that, for those people that, that they, they need to take this home and make some things right in some relationships, Lord, give them the grace to do that. Give some the grace to own up to their, their slice of the pie, Lord. Would you just build in our church family amazing, strong relationships with peace and love at the center of them that draw people to your kingdom, Jesus? We love you. We pray these things in your name, the name of Jesus. Amen.